Hey everyone, writing at Breitbart, Ian Hanchett. Uh, headline from today, February, is it today? No, this is from yesterday, February 17th, 2021. Uh, White House COVID advisor, beyond our explanation why Florida and California have similar COVID numbers despite strict California restrictions. Yeah, I would agree. That is the kind of thing that makes you go, hmm. Um, Hanchet, uh, hold on one second. Let me just get the Instagram people here. Where, where are you there? Instagram people. There we go. Um, Hanchet write on Wednesday's, uh, MSNBC live white house senior advisor for COVID response, Andy Slavitt said that Florida and California having similar coronavirus numbers, despite California having strict restrictions is an example of some things about the virus being a little beyond our explanation. Host Stephanie Rule said, contrast states like California and Florida, California basically in lockdown and their numbers aren't that different from Florida. Slavitt responded, look, there's so much of this virus that we think we understand, that we think we can predict, that's just beyond, a little bit beyond our explanation. What we do know is that the more careful people are, the more they mask and social distance, and the quicker we vaccinate, the quicker it goes away and the less it spreads. But we have to get... But we... uh, Sorry, hold on a second. But we have to get... uh, uh, Darn Instagram. (laughs) It's it's amazing what you do. Uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh is considered, you know, the master uh, broadcaster, and he is. But, you know, he was dealing with the ditto cam and the microphone. I'm dealing with the microphone, the ditto cam, uh, you know, the camera, you guys, Instagram, live stream, you know, like 20 other things, too. And I'm doing it all on my own, so take that. Now, uh, we all know Rush is the greatest, and we only wish to approach him in greatness and uh, you know it's like touching the sun you know if Icarus does his wings burn like wax that they are and he plummets Um, the quicker we vaccinate the quicker it goes away and the less it spreads but we have to but we have got to get better visibility into variants we don't know what role they play large events etc but this is as we all have learned by this time this is a virus that continues to surprise us It's very hard to predict. And all around the country, we've got to continue to do a better job. And I think we are. But we're not done yet. Oh, there it goes. Again, isn't it perhaps useful to acknowledge that Florida is taking a liberty-based approach while California isn't? And that perhaps liberty plays a great role in healing in various ways? And perhaps maybe this reveals that the um, the idea of masking up is a very bad idea. As um, I talked about a few, actually a couple of weeks ago on the episode, Mask Hysteria, the mask actually causes symptoms that are part of the suite of symptoms known as COVID-19. 
breathing fresh air, walking around in the sunshine, being out in open spaces. These are all things that have been done for the longest time and recommended by physicians for the longest time as the way one should conduct themselves and handle themselves when confronted with a disease situation. It's uh, kind of part of the suite of common sense we've been dealing with for many years, but again, the mainstream media wants to make excuses. Victor David Han- Davis Hansen is around again, this time writing for PJ Media. Our descent into collective madness. These are crazy times. A pandemic led to national quarantine, to self-induced recession, to riot, arson, and looting, to a contested election, and to a riot at the U.S. Capitol. In response, we are focused solely on upping the daily vaccination rate, getting the country back to work, opening the schools as the virus attenuates, ensuring safety in the streets, or are we descending into a sort of madness? Let me answer that one for you, Davis, uh, Vic, Vic, uh, Victor there. Uh, yes, yes, we are. Specifically, let me give that answer to Democrats. Yes, we are. We are descending into madness. Caused by you, Democrats, and Fauci, and your agendas in the teachers' union. Caused by you. It might have been understandable that trillions of dollars had to be borrowed to keep a suffocating economy breathing. But it takes little sense, but it makes little sense to keep borrowing $2 trillion a year to prime an economy now set to roar back with herd-like immunity on the horizon. Trillions of dollars in stimulus are already priming the economy. Cabin feverish Americans are poised to get out of their homes to travel, eat out, and socialize as never before. Meanwhile, the United States will have to start paying down nearly $30 trillion in debt. But we seem more fixated on raising rather than reducing that astronomical obligation. We are told man-made, worldwide climate change, as it is now discarded term global warming, can best be addressed by massive dislocations in the U.S. economy. The Biden administration plans to shut down coal plants. It will halt even nearly completed new gas and oil pipelines. It will cut back on fracking to embrace the multi-trillion dollar Green New Deal. Americans should pause and examine the utter disaster that unfolded recently in Texas and its environs. Parts of the American Southwest are covered in ice and snow for days. Nighttime temperatures crashed near zero in some places. The state under pressure has been tra- had been transitioning from a near limitless and cheap reservoirs of natural gas and other fossil fuels to generating power through wind and solar. But what happens to millions of Texans when wind turbines freeze up while storm clouds extinguish solar power? We are, witnessing, we are witnessing the answer. An oil and gas rich but energy poor Texas that is all but shut down. Millions are shivering without electricity and affordable heating. Some may die or become ill from this self-induced disaster, one fueled by man-made ideological rigidity. Texas' use of natural gas and power generations has helped the United States cut carbon emissions. Ignoring it for unreliable wind and solar alternatives 
was bound to have catastrophic consequences whenever a politically incorrect nature did not follow the global warming script. In 2019, a special counsel wrapped up a 22-month, $35 million investigation into then-President Donald Trump alleged collusion with Russia in the 2016 election. Robert, Robert Mueller and his team searched long and hard for a crime and came up empty. Then Trump was impeached in December 2019 and acquitted by the Senate in early 2020. His purported crime was warning the Ukrainians about the Biden's family quid pro quo racketeering. After the revelations concerning Hunter Biden's shenanigans, not only in Ukraine, but also in Kazakhstan and China, Trump's admonitions now seem prescient rather than impeachable. Trump had been threatened with removal from office under the 25th Amendment. He was accused of violating the Logan Act and the Constitution's Emoluments Clause. His executive orders were often declared unconstitutional, if not seditious. All of these oppositional measures predictably failed to receive either public or congressional support. Finally, an exasperated left decided to flog the presidential corpse of new private citizen Trump, it did so without a Supreme Court chief justice to oversee an impeachment trial in the Senate. The targeted president was no longer president. There was no, there was no special prosecutor, little debate, and even less cross-examination. In the end, the second impeachment was a sillier than the first. But like the first, the show trial wasted precious time and resources in the midst of a pandemic. But the height of our collective madness in the current cancel cultures, its subtexts are unearned white privilege and white supremacy. In the name of those abominations, mobs tear down statues, destroy careers, censor speech, require veritable oaths, and conduct re-education training. Stranger still, those alleging white privilege are usually themselves quite wealthy, liberal, and white. These elites count on their incestuous networking, silver spoon upbringings, and Tony degrees to leverage status, influence, and money in a way of undreamed of by the white working class. Affluent privileged minorities, likewise, join the chorus to call for everything from reparations to reprogramming of Trump voters. The most elite in America are the most likely to damn the privilege of those who lack it. Perhaps this illogical squares in psychological circle of feeling guilty about things they never had any intention of giving up. If blaming those without advantages does not satisfy the unhappy liberal elite, then they are always warring against the mute dead, changing their eponymous names, destroying their statues, slandering their memories, and denying their achievements. The common denominator with all these absurdities an ungracious and neurotic elite whose judgment is bankrupt and whose privilege is paid for by those who don't have it. Another great piece by Victor Davis Hanson. And that's what we were talking about, about civilizational decay and destruction. I've told you guys before, I think in terms of like 5,000 year time frames, what will Los Angeles and California be like in 5,000 years? Will people living here have the same liberties and opportunities at freedom and uh, prosperity that my generation had when I was born in 1970? Will we have the freedoms and opportunities curtailed 
just to the extent they've been curtailed in the last 10 or 15 years or specifically the last year? Or will this descent into tyranny continue? Will the circles of liberty around each individual shrink until they constrict us and break it so that the mask is the least, uh, the least stressful and least effective impediment to breathing free air? It's a very sad situation. And uh, thank you for uh, Victor Davis Hansen for that. Um, to be part, show you part and parcel of this, uh, Rick Moran over at PJ Media uh, also, um, I think today, has this one. List, uh, listen to this. Okay, because, I mean, this is, um, this is where this is all heading. And in cancel culture or blacklisting or any sort of, um, you know, McCarthyist kind of uh, purge of those who have fallen out of favor with the elite, um, the inevitable result is something like this. List of statues Chicago looks to remove includes the usual suspects and the president of America's first abolitionist society. So now they're coming for the statues of the anti-slavers. Rick Moran writes, the powers that be in Chicago have determined that the city is far too cluttered with statues, monuments, plaques, and even gravestones. So they formed a commission. Oh, great. A commission. The Chicago Monuments Project that will determine which historical figures are worthy of being honored and which should be consigned to the dustbin of history. There are 41 historical markers on the chopping block, which is a very good start to altering the past, but so much still needs to be done. It's hard work erasing history, so praise for the work of this commission should be forthcoming from all of us. We should be grateful for being instructed in how to think, what to feel, whom to admire, whom to despise. If you dare question their judgment in these matters, you're a racist, sexist, misogynist, Indian-hating, slavery-loving, nerf herder. Apologize to all the Wookiees out there. Uh, that's a misunderstood term in Star Wars in Empire Strikes Back when Leia calls um, uh, Han a scruffy-looking nerf herder. It's sometimes pronounced nerf herder. No, it's nerf herder, as if her nerfs are a creature worthy of being herded like sheep or cows. The city is under siege by gangs. The coronavirus is racing through neighborhoods. The vaccine distribution program is a clusterfuck, but it's heartening to see time and resources spent on the daily important task of appeasing the mob of radicals. Mayor Lori Lightfoot doesn't have much of a clue what's happening in her own city, but she's politically astute enough to ride the wave of anti-white, anti-American sentiment. From the Chicago Sun-Times, reasons for making the list include promoting narratives of white supremacy, presenting an inaccurate or demeaning portrayal of Native Americans, celebrating people with connections to slavery, genocide or racist acts, or presenting selective, oversimplified, one-sided views of history. Author's emphasis. I can't be the only one giggling at that last reason to tear down a statue of Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, or Ulysses S. Grant. Most of these activists have a stick-figure view of most of the people they want to erase from history. We know that because some of their choices are incredibly stupid. 
besides five statues of Lincoln. Others on the list include the General John Logan Monument in Grant Park, the General Philip Henry Sheridan Monument at Belmont and Lakeshore Drive, a statue of Benjamin Franklin in Lincoln Park, the Haymarket Riot Monument, Police Memorial at 1300 West Jackson Boulevard, the Italian Balbo Monument in Burnham Park, and the Jean-Baptiste Beaubien plaque at the Chicago Cultural Center. Benjamin Franklin, the founder of the first abolished society in America, is to be erased? Well, he is white, and he is American, and he did own two slaves at one time, so down with the statue. Lightfoot called the project a powerful opportunity for us to come together as a city to assess the many monuments and memorials across our neighborhoods and communities to face our history and what and how we memorialize that history. Given the past year, in particular the past summer, that made clear history is at past, it is essential that residents are part of this conversation. This project is about more than a single statue or mural. It's about channeling our city's dynamic civic energy to permanently memorialize our shared values, history, and heritage. As Chicagoans, it is an open and democratic way, the mayor was quoted as saying in a press release. Lightfoot swears she's not doing this to placate rioters. She says it's about public safety, that... This is about public safety. Anyone who saw the videotapes from a previous Friday night, which saw a peaceful protest hijacked by vigilantes who came there to hurt the police, but also other people got hurt in the ensuing chaos. This is about public safety, pure and simple, she said last summer. In making the erasure of history a priority, Lightfoot is indeed placating the rioters. The radicals are threatening the statues. They're going to be taken down. Hence, she is giving the rioters what they wanted all along. My disgust at spineless creatures like Lightfoot makes the bile rise in my throat. The, courageous, the courage of John, General John Logan, who could always be found at the front of his soldiers leading them into battle, or the courage of Christopher Columbus, who made a journey into an unknown that would have any radical rioter or BLM protester urinating in his pants, deserves to be remembered and respected. The communists discovered that when trying to erase someone from history, there are always those who kept their memories alive. That will be the case here. No matter how hard they try to alter the past, the future will have its way with them. You know, so true. Um, <laughs> so true. Um, and tying as a as a perfect segue from that into the next piece. This one also. Oh my God, we're in a PJ Media heavy day. We started with a Breitbart, so you know we go to media PJ Media here. One of my favorite writers is David Goldman. I've told you about him before. He's the expert on China. And here he writes from February 16th, 2021, two days ago. Mediocrity's envy of genius, the dirty secret of cancel culture. The cultural revolutionaries at the New York Times this week reviewed the witch hunt against 
classical musicians who stand accused of racism simply because great Western composers happened to be white. Cancel culture is despicable in all of its manifestations, but I take this particular instance personally. I trained in the School of Musical Analysis founded by Heinrich Schenker. My principal teacher was Carl Schachter, who also taught Professor Timothy Jackson of the University of North Texas, the target of this particular witch hunt. It's all about envy. My childhood piano teacher kept a recording of Florence Foster Jenkins, the deluded society lady portrayed by Meryl Streep in a 2016 comedy as a horrible example for youth. Her voice would be feathered as a screech owl, but no one was allowed to tell her she couldn't sing. The only classical musician still active who bears comparison to Miss Jenkins is a certain Philip Yule, now a professor of music theory at Hunter College, who posts videos of himself torturing a cello until it squeals in pain. Professor Yule is African-American and has won his 15 minutes of fame by denouncing whiteness in classical music. All of this would be of scant interest, except that Professor Yule has become the scourge of alleged racism in the classic mu classical music world and may have succeeded in extirpating from the Academy a grand tradition of musical analysis that began with Beethoven. Yule also dismisses Beethoven as merely an above-average component whose promise, prominence erases the contribution of composers of color. Thanks to Yule's rampage against supposed white supremacy in classical music, a living chain of teacher-to-pupil transmission of this aspect of Western civilization may be broken irreparably. For the strong of stomach or hard of hearing are referred to the fuge of Bach's fifth cello suite as performed by Professor Yule at minute 325 in a video posted on his personal website. It is hard to find a single note in tune. It is the sort of butchery that would earn an aspiring high school musician a condescending pat on the shoulder and a suggestion that he switch to the triangle. No one was allowed to tell Foster, Florence Foster Jenkins how awful she was because she was rich and connected. It is a complete mystery to me why no one has had the courage to stop Professor Yule from humiliating himself in public. Unlike the deluded Mr. Jenkins, Yule surely knows that everyone is laughing at him behind his back. The work he has put into his performances shows that he wants to play well, but he is condemned to sotto voce ridicule. To have played Bach this way is a humiliation. To push it in the public space is an act of unadulterated rage. You, my listeners, will have to suffer along with me, the talentless Professor Yule thinks. This isn't the Emperor's new clothes so much as it is the Emperor as a flasher. And Yule is entirely right. The music world must bite its collective tongue and suppress its laugh on pain of excommunication. Whatever your, our musical preferences... 
These are moments in which we need the classical style of composition. The musical style we inherit from the great composers is a continuing presence in our lives through film. The classical style of composition will never go out of fashion. My teacher, Carl Schachter, liked to say, because the movies need it, it is the only kind of music that can tell a story. They, there are those, intoned Yule in a recent blog post, who would actually take issue with me for saying the Ninth Symphony by Beethoven is no more a masterwork than Spalding's Twelve Little Spells, simply because we are told by whiteness and maleness that this couldn't be the case. Beethoven was undoubtedly an above-average composer, and he deserves our attention. But to say he was anything more is to dismiss 99.9% of the world's music written 200-plus years ago, which would be unscholarly and academically irresponsible, wrote the New York Times. Professor Yule, who is also on the faculty of the City University of New York Graduate Center, declined an interview with the Times. He is part of a generation of scholars who are undertaking critical race examinations of their fields. In Music Theory and the White Racial Frame, the paper he presented in Columbus, in Columbus, in Columbus, I was thinking it might have said Columbia, maybe that's a typo, by the New York Times. He writes that he is all for, in, he is for all intents and a practitioner of white music theory and that rigorous conversations about race and whiteness are required to make fundamental anti-racist changes in our structures and institutions. For music programs to require mastery of German, he has said, is racist, obviously. He has criticized the requirement that music PhD students study German or a limited number of white languages, noting that at Yale he needed a dispensation to study Russian. He wrote that the anti-racist policy solution would be to require languages with the new caveat, any language including sign language and computer languages, for instance, is acceptable with the exception of ancient Greek, Latin, Italian, French, or German, which will only be allowed by petition as a dispensation. Last April, he fired a broadside at Beethoven, writing that it would be academically irresponsible to call him more than an above-average composer. Beethoven, he wrote, has been propped up by whiteness and maleness for 200 years. The grudge that mediocrity bears against genius is the purest form of evil. Thomas Mann's post-war reworking of the Faust legend tells of the failed composer Adrian Leverkuen, who, in the final phase of a syphilitic dementia, has written a cacophonous cantata to take back Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Leverkuen has made a deal with the devil and suffers the consequences. If the devil has any taste in music, he won't be in the market for Yule's soul. Great line. <laughs> Black Americans have a splendid history in music. The great Marian Anderson, who sang the national anthem at both the second Eisenhower inauguration and the Kennedy inauguration, had the voice of the century, according to Toscanini, as well as sublime musicianship. Hear her in this arrangement of Brahms' song of eternal love. There's a link to that. The soprano Kathleen Battle is the best coloratura of my generation, a far cannier interpreter than, say, Joan Sutherland. Battle used high intelligence and unerring musicianship to turn a rather small natural voice into a virtuoso instrument. 
Anderson became an icon of the civil rights movement by showing that a black contralto could produce authoritative interpretations of the Western classics. Yule's envy-ridden rampage is a disgrace to her legacy. Yeah. Total craziness, folks. Completely, completely insane. And Goldman hits on such a universal truth of evil that if you don't possess something, the natural inclinations in human nature that take you towards greed will cause you to covet it and want to destroy those who possess that that you don't. And um, now we're seeing that play out in the world of genius. Hey, he's good. I'm not. Uh, so I have to destroy him or degrade him or tear him down or level him one way or another. Uh, my final piece today, I think, do I have time for this one? Hold on a second. Let me just look. I might go something short. You know what? I'm going to go something shorter because uh, we need, we need something light after all that. Um, Democrat introduces bill to make non-consensual condom removal illegal in California. Uh, Just so you know, I believe it already is. Now, California is a state that made it legal to knowingly give another person AIDS, but now is making it illegal for a man to take off a condom during sex. The non-consensual removal of a condom during sex could be considered sexual battery under a bill introduced by California Assemblywoman Christina Garcia, Democrat, of course, of Bell Gardens on Monday. California Civil Code currently characterizes sexual battery as someone who acts with the intent to cause a harmful or offensive contact with an intimate body part of another and as a result commits a sexually offensive act. The perpetrator is liable for damages. Bill AB453 would add a provision saying an individual commits sexual battery If that person causes contact between a penis from which a condom has been removed and the intimate part of another who did not verbally consent to the condom being removed. Garcia has pursued the legal amendment for several years, arguing that stealthing is an offense that burdens victims with physical and emotional harm. The Sacramento Bee reported. In a press release Monday, Garcia said... That she had been working on the issue since 2017. Well, thank God you haven't been wasting your time, Miss Garcia. Her quote, and I won't stop until there is some accountability for those who perpetrate the act. Sexual assaults, especially those on women of color, are perpetually swept under the rug. Such stigma is attached to this issue that even after every critic lauded Michaelia Coel's I may destroy for its compelling depiction of the horrors of sexual abuse, including of stealthing. It got zero Golden Globe nominations. That doesn't seem like an accident or coincidence to me. Okay, so now because it didn't win a Golden Globe nomination, it's the issue that requires legal uh, amendment. Garcia's initial attempt to restrict the practice was struck down in a key committee amid opposition from groups including the American Civil Liberties Union and the California Right to Life Committee. 
the B Report had said. It's disgusting that there are online communities that defend and encourage stealthing and give, that's by the way what this is called, in case you weren't following along, stealthing. <laughs> Even that has a name. Uh, trying to think of what's, is, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, stealthing, mysterious. I'm trying to find any um, sexually biased letters in the word stealthing that I can make fun of, but I can't at the moment. I'll work on it. I'll get back to you next episode. Uh, It's disgusting that there are online communities that defend and encourage stealthing and give advice on how to get away with removing the condom without the consent of their partner, but there is nothing in the law that makes it clear that this is a crime, Garcia concluded. Hmm. Uh, what if the condom breaks and wasn't removed on purpose? Uh, you know, uh, this is exactly the the way Democrats deal with their positions of power. They always focus on the things that aren't the issues, and then they allow the things that are the issues to stay the issues. Notice they aren't attacking the teachers' union. They aren't attacking the energy issue, the blackouts. Uh, blackouts refers to electricity blackouts. It's not a racist term, okay? Calm the you-know-what down, okay? Um, we're living, like, like, let's just start the top with Hansen. We're living in times of complete and total badness. We just are, okay? Uh, our society is going crazy. Um, madness and anti-science rules the day. While it's called science, those who are advocating science, like me, saying masks aren't healthy, are called anti-science. Those who point out junk science, like me, by saying global warming is fake and is junk science, are called anti-science. Calling people anti-science is a madness. It's the modern version of calling someone a racist or a sexist. It's what you call them when you have nothing else to call because your arguments are completely defeated and uh, have been enveloped by logic. We have leaders who are incredibly unimpressive people at best and completely destructive people at worst. We have an electoral system that essentially rewards with positions of incredibly high power people of completely unimpressive accomplishment and completely low moral character. We have a situation in which immorality is rewarded, morality is scolded, And everything that you can imagine in the world is being turned upside down, step by agonizing step to the point where we're losing statues of the past that were erected in memorial to people who acted heroically at their time in a way that would be considered heroic of all time and any time, including our time. But now because of some silly new standards and new religions and new mores, those people have to go. It's very sad. It's very frustrating. And um, I I hope it, it gets better. And then a quick word on Rush Limbaugh. I was in the room at CPAC 2009 seeing his 2009 CPAC speech live. It was about an hour and a half, two hours long of rock'em, sock'em entertainment and wisdom and brilliance like I've never, never seen before. Absolutely inspiring. 
I'd always been a fan of Rush, but I didn't understand fully his true and complete brilliance. I, and if, if you uh, go to Breitbart.com today, you'll see somewhere near the top of the page a link to that speech. And I got in just by hook and by crook. I had no idea I could see it. I happened to be running for Congress in, uh, in California at the time, and I went to CPAC to try to meet people and see what politics is about and get involved more in the conservative movement and that kind of thing. And uh, I knew Rush was going to be the keynote speaker, but I had no idea I would get to see him. And I had a really good seat, too. I was not far away from the stage. I was like in the middle of the auditorium, a very large um, hotel barroom auditorium. But I was about in the middle, but dead center. So I was in the center, in the width of the stage, like this way. I was dead center, maybe 15 or 20 rows back. And... Um, you had to get in the room uh, a long time before and wait. So I saw some other great speeches. And I didn't know them at the time, but I met two people at that. Or I saw two people speak before Rush at that speech. One, Fela McAleer and Anne McElhaney, who are great filmmakers who at the time had just released a movie called Not Evil, Just Wrong. About the hoax that is global warming and the damage that could be done to an economy by overreactions to the junk signs of global warming. Phelan and Anne were fantastic. And I'm so honored to say that today they're neighbors of mine and they're friends of mine and they're very good friends of mutual friends of mine. And I adore them beyond all belief. And I got to see them speak. And then there was the uh, head of CPAC at the time who then introduced Rush. And Rush was so inspiring. And the ultimate thesis of his 2009 speech that I will take with me the rest of my life is this. What does he want is conservatism. And what is conservatism? At its core, it's the desire for every human being on planet Earth living on this planet of God's creation to be as free and live live in as much liberty as possible and to be free to be as prosperous as possible and to be as happy as possible. That's right. Freedom, prosperity, and happiness were the core of Rush Limbaugh's belief. The core of it. And he lived his life espousing those ideals. I mean, every day on his show, three hours a day, five days a week, not counting the guest hosts who are brilliant in their own right. And we'll, luckily, we're blessed to have them continue his legacy for at least the near term. And I hope for many years to come because, you know, Mark Stein, Ken Matthews, Todd Herman are all wonderful. He used to have Dr. Walter Williams, God bless his soul, who passed away a few weeks ago, be one of his fill-in hosts too. I mean, amazing, talented fill-in hosts. Amazing. But knowing that freedom, happiness, prosperity were the motivating ideals that drove Rush, I assimilated that. I decided that those uh, articulated in that way would be the motivating principles that also would drive me. And how we accomplish them are, you know, sort of the things below the top of the pyramid, which are you know, faith and adherence in God, um, uh, respect for our fellow human being, um, uh, equality of, of opportunity for all, 
living in a free society uh, that's governed by um, just justice and law. Uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, regard for the past. Uh, you know, all the things that I just read to you is, is sort of the thesis points of those different essays. But then my story about Rush got better. Even better. Yeah, just wait, there's more. Um, I talked la uh, in the last episode and I had a wonderful text exchange with this gentleman. Uh, Rush's nephew, Stephen Limbaugh, who is the keyboard player of a band called Kingsley. And years ago, he allowed me to use Kingsley's music as the bumper music on my podcast. And I have access to the full catalog of any song by Kingsley to use. And the one that struck me as the most kind of meaningful song that I thought rocked like hell and had great lyrics that embodied what we were talking about, what my call for... Um, basically, there's a saying, which is... Um, in times of madness, we need someone to stand up and, and say, halt and stop. And the song No More, basically, that's what it means to me. I've never actually read the lyrics, so I don't know exactly what they are, but it sounds like that to me. And I've made the song No More by Kingsley, the bumper music of my podcast here, which is a little sort of a, a gossamer thin thread of through line between Rush's show and the Limbaugh family and my show here. And I thank Stephen so sincerely for letting me do that. And I thank Stephen so sincerely for being a good friend and a wonderful person. And he's a, when you meet members of the Limbaugh family, they blow you away because they're such, they're such unbelievably impressive people. And Stephen, I, I look at you as a role model for me. I really do. As I've looked at Rush as a role model for me and his brother David and just everyone in that family is is top notch in my books, and I love you all, and I offer you my condolences and prayers and hopes for, you know, dealing with the pain of losing Rush and all that that means, I, the pain I can't imagine, and I, I wish you my love and just say I'm here for you, but wait, there's more. A couple years later, in 2013, I was attending an event at the Reagan Library. Very, very special kind of dinner gala. And Rush was the keynote speaker there too. So I was blessed enough to have seen President Trump speak twice. First as candidate Trump, second as President Trump. And I also saw live and in person Rush Limbaugh speak twice. Once in 2009 and again in 2013. And the 2013 speech was different because it wasn't televised. It was very, very... Um, I use the word exclusive audience, but not in the word uh, in, in terms of exclusivity, but it was a very special audience of people that I was blessed to be, have been invited to. It was not open to the public, but this, this group that I belong to and, and know about and have enjoyed their camaraderie for many years. And Rush gave, again, a absolutely stunning and wonderful speech. But here's the best part for me. When Rush entered... I was facing forward looking at the the dais where he was going to speak and I didn't notice but he walked right past me behind me inches from me as he uh, went to the stage and uh, that was kind of cool being that close to such greatness but then when he left the stage and finished his speech he walked back the same way and he's high-fiving everyone and shaking hands as he's going because this time we could see the path he's approaching from since we were looking at the stage. He's coming from the stage to the back of the room. 
And since I wasn't one of the, you know, high-ranking, um, hobnobbing nomenclature of the group, I had a more a proletariat station of my table, which is at the back of the room. But that turned out to be a really good thing. Because as Rush exited, I had my hand up, giving him a high five, and I was the last person he encountered on his way out. And he gave my high five, instead of high-fiving me, he gave me a fist bump and held it there for several seconds. And I gave him a hug and he hugged me. And he said, thank you for being here. And he walked away and I said, I love you, man. And man, that was just the best. And I like to think of myself as somewhat of like, uh, the Forrest Gump or the Sean Parker of the conservative movement. I've, for some reason, I've been lucky enough to have been in the presence of a lot of the greats of the conservative movement. Hannity, uh, Limbaugh, now twice, um, uh, Mark Levin several times, uh, Andrew Breitbart was a friend, uh, of course, Stephen Limbaugh. Um, and, and a lot of the writers who I, I uh, read to are people I've met or... Um, I found out years ago, I've been booted off Twitter, unfortunately, but I found out that I was followed on Twitter by Ted Cruz and, uh, and James Woods. I was like, wow, that is amazing. I've never met Mr. Woods, but I got to meet Mr. Cruz, or excuse me, Senator Cruz a couple times. And um, just having an interest in this area and these subjects and having the opportunity to have had at least some contact with some of the greats of that world Tell you, that's enough for me. I mean, I, I want, and I ambish, not a real word, but I use it here. I ambish to be hopefully a, uh, a broadcaster of Rush Limbaugh's, uh, Rush Limbaugh's quality and, and reach and all of those things. And I work to hopefully do the step-by-step -step work to someday reach there. Um, and that's well and good. And if I make it great, if not, at least I have this microphone in this show in this in this audience. And I have these great experiences brought to me by the generosity of these great men. Again, God bless you, Rush. Thank you for everything. Thank you to the whole Limbaugh family. Thank you for everyone involved in making that show be what it is. Those people in the audience who made sure it lasted for 33 years. As the greatest show you know, on radio possibly ever. And thank you to God for giving us this life and these opportunities to communicate these liberating, happiness, and prosperity spreading ideas to all. See you next time, guys. <laughs>